Thank you so much for, uh, am I on? Yes, I'm on. Thank you so much for giving me and Clark uh, this opportunity. It's great to have a time to chat with you. Um, we've not used sermon time and pulpit time to talk about some of these uh, United Methodist issues. So uh, thank you for coming out on a Sunday afternoon. Before, and I, the way we'll do this, I'll talk for a little while just sharing my heart with you. And then after that, Pastor Clark will do the same. And as Dan said, we'll take a break and uh, collect the cards where uh, you, you're welcome to write some questions. And we'll try to answer as many as we can without fatiguing you too much and let you get home before too late. Uh, I do want to begin with a passage of Scripture that is... Um, one of those passages that Peter wrote to early pastors in the Christian community. And um, it, it is a guiding principle for me. It comes from 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning of verse 2. Peter says, Shepherd, shepherd the flock of God that is among you exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. This is the word of God. Going to stick a little close to a manuscript tonight. Clark and I have tried to work a little bit in the last few days. We don't tend to tell each other what to say or what to preach, but we don't want to be uh, too redundant tonight. We want to make good use of our time. We have been in a season of discernment in our congregation for a few months, and we have, and we have more time for discernment that is yet to come. I truly hope that this has been a period of discernment uh, for each of you. Uh, it has been for me. I'm very grateful for the work of our administrative team and our discernment team. We have great, great gifted people here in our congregation that give of themselves sacrificially uh, to the work of Jesus Christ here at um, Wesley Memorial. Uh, this probably will embarrass them, but I would love to have the members of the, I want you to make sure you know who these people are. I'd love to have the members of the administrative team and the discernment team just to stand and um, would invite you to show them your gratitude for all of their hard work. One of the things that makes Wesley Memorial Wesley Memorial is the great, great human resources, gifted people that God has given to us. People have been asking me for, for a few months uh, to speak and to lead in this season. I'm always aware that when people say those type things to me, they, they also hope that I'll speak and lead in a way that suits, that suits their opinions and their desires. It's rather like when people talk about preachers who step on toes. Uh, they usually are more grateful if you step on other people's toes than theirs. But I, I'm just grateful for, for these few moments that you're giving to me and Clark. We can share our hearts and share our, our opinions. 
over the entire course of my ministry, which is uh, officially now in its 38th year, uh, I've been increasingly disturbed by our denomination that seems to at times to be most passionate about creating a larger and larger tent for what can be accepted and affirmed. Uh, the winds of cultural accommodation have, have always beaten strongly against the Christian church, and this era is no different. Uh, this, I, b I believe in the priesthood of all believers. That's a core, particularly Protestant value. And that means for me that I am accountable for my faith, and I'm accountable for my relationship to God. And I know that at the end of the day, at the end of my life, uh, I have to stay true to what I believe to be the plain teachings of Scripture and the, and the plain trajectory or path of the Christian church throughout history. And while it is a given in the Christian life, and I hope it is a given, I hope all of us agree, and I think we do agree even if we don't meet this standard, while it is a given that all of us should, go, should, should show unconditional kindness to every human being, unconditional respect to every human being. Uh, it's also obvious in the Christian community that we've never been able to affirm everyone's choices in life. I, on most days, I, on the, well, actually on every day, I don't affirm all of my choices in life. And that's why the practice of repentance is so crucial and critical, critical to the Christian life. The practice of repentance should be a daily practice in the Christian life because we all fall short of the glory of God, as the Apostle Paul says. Obviously, in our age of social media, it is not hard to find many examples where we as a denomination seem to be straying from our core doctrines and convictions. Uh, the internet is full of examples, but it doesn't usually seem helpful to just keep pointing out those examples. And oftentimes when we do point out some examples, they are... The people who point them out are accused of fear-mongering and exaggerating and disparaging the denomination. And they may be doing that. We have to each one make that decision for ourselves. But this seems to be one place where we're not always encouraged to speak truth to power. For 30 years, the growing controversy and growing controversy has been a part of our denominational culture, our denominational family life. Much of the controversy has been centered around the topics of uh, concerning human sexuality. Uh, and that, that is an important issue, certainly is in this um, heavily sexualized age. But um, I, for one, and I think there are many in our connection that would say the same thing, I, I've grown very, very weary of the ongoing controversy uh, that has been part of our United Methodist existence for quite a while. Now, the, the, first, the first clergy gathering I can remember when we uh, dealt with this controversy over human sexuality uh, that I attended was, was back in the early, early 1990s. General conferences and annual conferences have been the most obvious occasions of well-publicized denominational conflict. But in recent years, uh, it's, be it's begun to reach down into local congregations, and uh, that grieves me in a lot of ways. 
Uh, don't know if any of you take the Raleigh paper. This was the Raleigh paper over Labor Day. This is the front page of the News and Observer. The whole front page of the News and Observer is about, and you see the title there, the Ununited Methodist. The church has long delayed an anticipated fracture over LBGTQ issues. Until now, the headlines say, and it's not going to be easy. And there's like five articles in this uh, edition of the Sunday edition of the Raleigh News and Observer, all about the conflict in our denomination. And that grieves me. Uh, most of my ministry, we've known that it's been going on, but most of the time, we've kept it at arm's length. We've kept it away from the local church, but uh, particularly in this age, particularly in this age of social media, that's, that's harder and harder to do. Later this month, uh, in the Eastern North Carolina Conference of the United Methodist Church, uh, they will host a special annual conference uh, to act on petitions from over 250 United Methodist churches in the eastern part of our state who are asking to leave or disaffiliate from their annual conference. And these sort of meetings and discussions are being replicated uh, throughout the connection. In, in hopes of reducing, we, we had hope, we in hopes of reducing the denominational conflict, which has consumed so much energy and so many resources, at least at the general church level, the 2019 General Conference passed paragraph uh, 2553 to help churches exit the denomination if they could not accept either the actions of the general conference or actions of their local annual conference. If you're not Methodist, you don't know Methodist speak, general conference is our global gathering that speaks for the denomination. Our annual conferences are a regional gathering. We're part of the Western North Carolina annual conference here. Um, but at general conference 2019, uh, as we were trying to deal with this conflict, we did pass that paragraph uh, that, we, that we hoped could be used as a gracious, amicable exit strategy for churches who either had concerns, conscientious concerns about what the general conference had done or the ways that annual conference uh, responded to that. The conflict, this conflict, between the general conference and annual conferences in many ways is indicative of, of our chaotic state right now. It is the general conference that theoretically speaks on behalf of the United Methodist, but um, uh, in recent years, a lot of annual conferences have expressed strong, strong disagreement. What happened in 2019 was the general conference uh, met and, and reaffirmed our traditional stand concerning human sexuality. Uh, and then many, uh, in light of that, in lieu of that, many annual conferences, including our own here in Western North Carolina, um, voted to uh, reject and resist uh, what was done at the general conference level. And again, that's just, that's rather indicative of the conflict and the, and the chaos that we're living with, especially on a general church level. The passage of this paragraph, uh, 2553, which allows churches within the denomination to be able to leave their conference with their property, 
and their assets um, is, is, is very new in the life of uh, the Methodist Connection because of the Methodist Trust Clause. The Methodist Trust Clause has been around for 200 years and it basically says that the, the legal holders of your property and your assets is the annual conference. Uh, local churches hold that property and those assets in trust for the annual conference. This paragraph allows churches to be able to leave uh, during this season with their property uh, and with, with their assets. And of course, um, because of this option, because of this opportunity, um, many churches, many churches are availing themselves of this opportunity. Uh, at this point, I want to just look at that handout that I gave you where I'm trying to be as um, simple, but I hope not simplistic. What, what we keep hearing over the last couple, three years is uh, make it simple, make it simple. Um, so at least the issue of disaffiliation, what that means, uh, I'm trying to make it simple with that handout. And that's something you can take away and reflect on. Uh, what is disaffiliation from the United Methodist Church? It's, it's severing ties from this particular Methodist denomination. Uh, according to Wikipedia, there are 75 Methodist-type denominations in the world, uh, denominations that um, trace their heritage back to the Wesleyan Revival. We, we've been part of the United Methodist denomination. It was formed in 1968. So disaffiliation is what we're speaking of, is disaffiliation from that denomination. What disaffiliation from the UMC is not, this can take place later, but the, 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 the simple act of disaffiliation, it's not leaving the Methodist tradition, it's not changing any theology, it's not changing any social stand, it's not changing who we presently are as a church, it's not giving up any of our property or assets, it's, it's not joining any other denomination. Uh, that could be a subsequent step. Uh, following disaffiliation. Um, the, the issue that most people seem interested in, uh, particularly the press, is why are churches disaffiliating from the UMC? Uh, you see what I've given you there? Basically, they have determined that the UMC is no longer a good fit for their congregation, and they want to be free from the ongoing, and some of them see this as an example or an opportunity to be free from the ongoing conflict that exists within the denomination, has existed within the denomination now for decades. And some congregations are stepping out of the denomination as, as one way of perhaps stepping out of the ongoing conflict within the denomination over human sexuality. This seems to be true, particularly some of our larger churches that, that are stepping away. Um, 14,000 member Woodlands Church in Texas, 6,500 member, St. Andrew's Church also in Texas. Um, the biggest church in the Alabama Conference, Fraser Memorial. Uh, Mount Bethel, one of the largest churches in the Atlanta area of our, of our um, North, uh, North Georgia Conference. These are some of the churches that have stepped away. And some of these larger churches are doing it uh, in hopes that somehow that will keep the conflict at a distance. Uh, and it may be a naive hope, but in some hope that that will keep the conflict at a distance from the local church. I've given you there what one particular congregation has written. 
And this is a congregation, it's one of the top five largest United Methodist churches in the Kentucky Conference. It is actually uh, the Centenary Church in the Louisville, um, in the Lexington area. Here's, this comes straight from them as far as the way their leadership um, related it to their church family. Here are their reasons as to why they chose this affiliation. You see them there in italics. Uh, they say, the United Methodist Church has shown a severe inability to hold key leaders accountable to our core beliefs and doctrine, which has resulted in much division. Uh, the second one, the governance model in place no longer provides the accountability and connection that it was designed to uphold. Uh, again, there's examples of that throughout the connection uh, where it seems that some parts of the Book of Discipline still, um, still strongly stand and there are other parts of the Book of Discipline uh, that may or may not stand uh, depending upon um, what region of the country or what Episcopal leadership that you have. For instance, I'm sure it's not news to you that what the Book of Discipline has said now for quite a while uh, is that we do not ordain self-avowed practicing homosexuals. Uh, that's been our Book of Discipline now for quite a while. That's been the stand of the United Methodist Church. Uh, that's been the stand you've been living with uh, for decades. It was the stand that was reaffirmed in St. Louis in 2019, one of the stands that was reaffirmed in St. Louis as the General Conference reaffirmed uh, our traditional stand on human sexuality. But even though that's a stand in the Book of Discipline, uh, the Western jurisdiction, just last week or so, uh, we re we've recently had jurisdictional conferences. Uh, the, the Western jurisdiction uh, has elected their second openly um, practicing homosexual bishop. So there's just some, um, there's some breakdown as far as how the Book of Discipline is still serving as the rule book for the denomination. It's, it's, it's increasingly got harder and harder for one book of discipline to govern, to govern our whole denomination. And that's what this particular church is talking about. That's an example, uh, one example of what this particular church is talking about regarding the governance model and the uh, inability to kind of hold each other accountable. You see there's their third reason there the denomination has been in serious decline, both in membership and financially each year since its founding in 1968. And there's a lot of reasons for that, and we can talk about that for a long time, and we all have different um, conclusions as to why uh, the, the Christian faith in general is in decline in the United States. But among those of us that are United Methodists, you probably noticed that since 1968, we've lost a third of our, of our membership. And so in some ways, um, that's been concerning for, for some of our churches. Going on with what this particular church says in, in Lakeston, Kentucky, the UMC has fostered a culture of conflict and division, which is not helpful to the mission and ministry of the local church. And again, they're talking about themselves there. Uh, we believe that believing now, this church says, we can grow more exponentially and be better stewards of our resources. And uh, there they spoke about their apportionments. Uh, this church uh, in Lexington, Kentucky is a little larger than, than we are, or at least their budget's larger than we are. Their apportionments, uh, as far as the, their giving to the denomination to support the work of the denomination, uh, is around $250,000 a year. 
uh, we give around $180,000 a year to support the work of the denomination. And then you see their fourth reason that I'm offering you there for your consideration. There are also deep theological divides occurring within uh, our UM seminaries, clergy and churches that create barriers to our witness to our community and world. Um, that's what this church sees. And there, there are obviously theological divides in, in, uh, in the big tent that we, uh, that we refer to as the United Methodist Church. And you have to decide uh, whether or not those theological divides are helpful or if that lack of unity somehow is hurtful uh, to, to our witness. And then that church um, said in bold, in short, our leadership has determined that we must take steps now to continue to be who we've always been for many decades. And this church said we will continue to be a beacon for Jesus Christ, hold the same theological beliefs, and be a light to, the, to this city. Um, I'm, I'm being transparent with you. I think this church has some concerns, some valid concerns, uh, some concerns that we need to pay particularly close attention to. And that's, those are the concerns that have brought us to this season and uh, United Methodism. So uh, going on with the handout, how does a congregation disaffiliate? Uh, using paragraph 2553 of the Book of Discipline, a paragraph that we adopted in St. Louis in 2019, and a paragraph that expires on uh, the last day of December in 2023. Uh, you can use that paragraph, which requires a two-thirds, two-thirds congregational vote after a period of discernment and discussion that is presided over by the United Methodist Church District Superintendent. And every conference has spelled out um, very specifically how they will work with churches to guide them through, through the process. Uh, to meet this requirement, paragraph 2553, congregations must be up to date with their apportionment giving, that's denominational giving, and they have to give uh, one additional year of apportionments, and they have to pay any unfunded pension liability for previous pastors. I know in the room uh, there in St. Louis, what we were assuming this was was just simply asking churches to pay their responsibility. Uh, there are uh, groups that are dependent upon uh, that connectional giving, so you have to give them time to uh, adjust their budgets accordingly, and then, of course, uh, to make sure that your uh, previous pastors are taken care of with the pension. That's where the unfunded pension liability comes in. So uh, you're not purchasing your buildings or anything like that, under paragraph 2553, uh, for the first time in our history, you can exit with your buildings and with your property, but this is uh, basically what we considered simply being churches paying their responsibility as they were heading out. Uh, the district superintendent of every district uh, will, supply, will supply congregations with this figure. Uh, that figure is provided to churches after they reach out to the district superintendent and invite them to come in and talk about the process. An annual conference approval is the last step in this process for a congregation. Uh, that's why in the Eastern Conference they're having a called annual conference on the 19th to deal with uh, 250 plus churches that are looking at disaffiliation. Right now we don't have any plans for a called annual conference. Our next annual conference, our only annual conference in 2023 
will be in June. So um, let me offer you some concluding remarks. I promised Clark I wouldn't take all of his, all of his time. Theologically speaking, my, my first love, of course, is, is Jesus Christ. Then comes the Methodist tradition of, of living out the Christian faith. And then comes my church family here at Wesley Memorial. And I'm convinced, I've always been convinced, that denominations um, should only be a means to an end and not an end in themselves. When I see the, the level of some of the conflict in our denomination, and we knew it was coming when we did this work in St. Louis in 2019. We've known this has been coming for quite a while. Uh, I don't know that any of us could, in, could have envisioned how, how um, vociferous the conflict has become uh, for people who are um, against disaffiliating and those who are in favor of disaffiliating. And um, sometimes when I see the conflict, I'm, I'm concerned that people are making a denomination into something more than it should be. Uh, we all know that our identity is in Christ. Our identity, first and foremost, is in Christ. Uh, I am a proud Methodist. Uh, if you cut me, my blood flows Methodist because I believe that uh, the Methodist way of reading Scripture, the Methodist way of living the Christian life and viewing the Christian life is uh, the way that I, I feel to be uh, the most biblical to what I've been called uh, as, as, a, as a leader in the Christian community. So um, th those are my concerns. Those are my passions. So obviously, particularly this evening as I speak, my greatest concern is the unity of this congregation. Uh, and we all are concerned about that. I mean, some people act like they're concerned about unity and they think other people are not. It's obvious we're all concerned about the unity of our congregation. I know that there's a letter circulating, and I'm always appreciative of people's passion for their church. I know there's a letter circulating, uh, gathering names to create a petition uh, to ask our church council to not allow the district superintendent to allow us to have a vote. Um, it doesn't come as a surprise to you. We Methodists have always been averse to those kind of letters. I remember the, um, in one of my uh, early appointments, the announcement was going to be made on a particular Sunday that I was being moved, and it was not a good year for a move to happen. I showed up that morning in worship, and uh, some well-meaning people had laid out a, a petition for people to add their signatures to, uh, to, to somehow fight my move, fight the move. Uh, that was the, 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 that the bishop was um, involving me in that year, and I, I politely asked that congregation to do away with that list, because uh, we, we've learned over the years that sometimes those letters, even though they're they're well-meaning, they may actually go to create some division. I'm not sure how suppressing a vote or preventing a vote would would magically create unity. I, I tend to think and. Um, and I've watched churches go through this, particularly when I was serving as a district superintendent. We don't vote often as Methodists, but we do vote. There are, <clears throat> there are times we vote. And I think that letting people have their voice through a vote, then respecting the outcome of the vote and living in Christian love and community in light of that vote 
is how we have usually dealt with major issues in the church and, and moved on. Uh, now, I know as a culture, as a country, we don't seem to do that well anymore. We, we can't ever seem to accept the outcome of, of, of a voting process in this country, but perhaps this could be a time when we show the world around us that, again, we know how to deal with um, major issues, and we vote sometimes if it involves a, a, a large building project. We vote sometimes if it involves a relocation or a merger, and votes are always uh, disconcerting, but um, we can show the world around us how we can deal with a major issue and, and move on. Um, I came away from our last two general conferences, not really not with a great concern about our denomination dividing, um, because that is inevitable, that is happening. But rather, I came, came away from general conference, last two general conferences, not with a major concern that we were going to divide, but with a major concern as to how we would treat each other in the midst of this time. And that's still my major concern. We need to take this as an opportunity to, to show grace and dignity and civility and respect to each other. Consensus doesn't mean that you always agree with those people in your family, but consensus means that you, you, you will not sabotage what the majority decides. And we Christians can show the world around us how we can approach consensus, even on some of the big issues of the day, if, if we stepped away from the denomination and the name on our sign was simply Wesley Memorial Church, and we were known simply as a church in the Methodist tradition, people would not notice a great change in our congregation because we are who we are. People are not attracted to us because of our denominational affiliation. We are not who we are because of our denominational affiliation. I've probably more so than many of you in the room here, I've, I've, I've been given a lot by this denomination, but still I try to keep a proper perspective. Um, we are Wesley Memorial, that's who we are. That's who we are as a people, that's who the world around us knows us to be. And, um, you know, no, no vote will change that depending on how we approach the vote and then how we come away from the vote. And if I may, I would like to close with just a personal note because I keep getting asked this. And um, for us to proceed toward a vote on this issue, the denomination will make me declare this. Uh, so on a personal note, I just want you to know that I will support this congregation and I will accept whatever this congregation decides. If you, if you decide to disaffiliate, I will support you on that. And um, if you'll have me, I'll go with you in, into that experience. Um, I, I, want, I want you to feel supported and encouraged. I think all of your pastors here, all five of us that seek to give pastoral oversight, shepherding to this congregation would agree. We are, we are here for you. And um, I have no desire to serve Christ anywhere else right now. Um, and I say that because um, I know occasionally uh, people float rumors and sometimes I've, I've, 
I've said that I've ran across some people who seem to know more about me than my wife knows about me. Sometimes they know more about me than I know about me. Um, but just so it's on the record, just so you know, before General Conference 2016 and before General Conference 2020, uh, the General Conference delegation of the Western North Carolina Annual Conference approached me about considering being a candidate for the Episcopacy, being a candidate for the Office of Bishop um, from this annual conference. Both times I turned them down. That's not my calling. Local churches is, is my calling. And, um, and I, I know that, that there are people on the transitional leadership team of the, um, of the, of the new Global Methodist Church who have approached me about a, a role of leadership in the Global Methodist Church. And I have turned them down. I've refused to even have a conversation with them. They wanted me to drive to Fayetteville. I can't think of many reasons I would drive to Fayetteville. And that was not one of them, certainly. So I turned them down on that. Um, I'm honored when, whether it's the UMC or the GMC, um, thinks that somehow I could provide leadership to them. But I just want you to know my heart is here with you. Um, I can't imagine waking up anywhere else tomorrow morning. There's nowhere else I'd rather be in ministry. And I want to thank you for your prayers. Clark and I have been talking that uh, these are difficult days in a lot of ways. It's difficult and hard to be a Christian in this age. It's difficult and hard to be a Christian leader in this age. And then here we United Methodists come along and we, we make it even a little more difficult to be a Christian leader. But we are appreciative of your prayers, and Clark and I both mentioned how in the midst of a very, very stressful time that it's um, also been a time of um, great peace for both of us. I, I, I sense your prayers. I sense your support. I sense that you understand that this is not an easy time, but we want to be able to um, journey, journey alongside of you in this time. So I, I do want to give Clark time to uh, speak with you. Um, I hope that you've heard what I've said. I hope you haven't heard something I didn't say. Um, and uh, Clark will speak, and then we'll get some questions from you, and we'll see how we can, we can answer those. Clark. Did you? Good for you. Wow, you guys look great. You're welcome. You need, I, I do need glasses, especially with you, Dan. Um, I'm not going to be arrogant to assume that I can change anyone's mind about anything, and I'm not going to try to do that. Uh, my primary concern as a pastor is your soul and your relationship with God. And so... I'm thankful that this season of discernment has been a good thing in that it has allowed God's people to finally have honest conversations with each other and hopefully wrestle with some deep core beliefs and hopefully come out on the other side a little bit more like Jesus than you were yesterday. So as one of your pastors, I'm going to quote, <clears throat> I have to quote John Wesley, right? At least once. 
I encourage you to be rigorous in judging yourself and gracious in judging others. I encourage you, be rigorous in judging yourself and gracious in judging others. So I'm gonna start with a story that I think is a typifying one for the problem we have, a microcosm, if you will. It was General Conference 2016 at Lake Junaluska. I was, I was ordained that weekend, and uh, the day before, we had a vote that came up on the floor of the business session. So you have clergy over here and lay delegates over here. I don't know, it's hundreds, I don't know how many. And, uh, and this petition was, we want to overturn the language of human sexuality in the Book of Discipline. And I thought, wow, I'm getting thrown in the deep end here. This is, this is heavy stuff right off the bat here. And uh, so they couldn't do a hand vote, there's too many people, so they said, if, we're just going to stand if you're in favor. If you're, if you're in favor of overturning the language, stand, right? Well, as I'm there with all the clergy side, about, I'm not, I would say it's a good estimate, about 85% of the clergy stand up. And then I look across the room at the lay delegation, there's only about 15% standing up. And it was then in that moment I realized I'm not sure this is going to end as well as we think it will. I realized in that moment there was a bit of a divide between the pew and the pulpit. Theologically, ideologically, that was six years ago. And so I realized that I think a lot of majority of clergy and the majority of laity are yoked together a bit unequally. These ties that bound us are fraying as we move in different directions. So I don't have an answer to that, but I realized that day that the majority of lay people have been disaffiliating for quite some time. And, you know, the longer you're a pastor, you deal with people and I've learned that you know, divorce doesn't happen. Uh, divorce happens slowly, right? No one ever wakes up and looks at their spouse and goes, you know what, I'm going to divorce you today, right? It's always a snowball thing. It builds and it builds until finally you made mistakes. You said something you didn't mean to say. You made this and that. And those of us that have been on the know, we have felt this building and building and building. So I don't know about y'all, but I'm exhausted, and you're probably exhausted too, no matter how you feel, you're exhausted. And there has to be a point of closure at some point. This cannot go on. But if you're coming into this conversation sort of uninitiated, yeah, it's like drinking from a fire hose. And it is. I mean, you have to, it changes daily. But back to the UMC, the lady and the clergy, most UMC lay people I've known over my whole life in the Methodist Church in the past 20 years in lots of churches is that most lay people are good, southern, Christian, not rock the boat kind of people, people that keep it pretty close to the vest, not the kind of people that want to come against their pastor. They just sit quietly by, I'm going to trust, I'm going to go along. And, and if they really don't like it, they might vote with their feet or something like that. Not all, but most. But the past few years, I've noticed that that has shifted. I've noticed that some aren't just voting with their feet. Um, I've found that many, many lay people I speak with do not want to leave the United Methodist Church, but they feel the United Methodist Church has left them. 
And that's just one of the realities. The majority of clergy and lay people are missing each other. We're using the same language, but with different meanings and different expectations. So is this divide of pew and pulpit, is it tenable? Is it sustainable? Because if one group of lay people and a few pastors are upholding something that we've always upheld and another group wants to change it or deviate from it, then I have to ask, who's the one that's really doing the leaving? On a large scale, the United Methodist Church has not had a worldwide general conference since 2016, as Jeff said. Now, a general conference is the official voice of the United Methodist Church and is composed of delegates from around the world. The 2016 general conference was so contentious that they tabled this discussion over human sexuality until 2019. So that they called for three years of listening and a creation of a specially called 2019 General Conference to decide once and for all regarding human sexuality. Clear as mud? You got it? Great. Now the two prevailing options in 2019 were the one church plan, a compromise that would allow ministry and theology to be contextual to the geographic area you found yourself. The other option was the traditional plan, which is what the UMC has always believed, but it was actually even more punitive. It had stipulations to hold bishops accountable. It was like church trials, and honestly, a lot of conservative people felt uncomfortable with it. It was like a little bit too heavy-handed. But 2019, this traditional plan passed, 53% to 47. So the official voice of the United Methodist Church spoke. Did that solve the divide of pew and pulpit? Jesus liked to ask rhetorical questions, so I just asked you one. The answer is no. The decisions of that 2019 General Conference were resisted and currently are by large portions of our ecclesial leadership. Now, as Jeff said, our Western North Carolina Conference, comprised of clergy and lay delegates, actually have rejected the decision of 2019 General Conference that is official. They voted on that by a significant margin. And they said, quote, we reject the traditional plan approved at General Conference 2019 as inconsistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we will resist its implementation. So our Western North Carolina Conference rejected the official voice of the United Methodist Church, and our conference stated they will resist its implementation. So I have an important question. If both sides are saying the other is sinning, then who's to say who's even right? Who's, and by what standard or authority do you even define what sin is? It grieves me deeply, but the United Methodist Church has lost its ability to abide by covenantal decisions. And therefore, we cannot move forward as a people until we even know where we're going. We have gridlock. And so the covenant, the covenants that abound the United Methodist Church are broken. And so people are doing what's right in their own eyes. I do not think this is sustainable. So something I hear frequently is, there's really nothing to worry about. The doctrines of the Methodist Church are not going to change. They're actually impossible to change, almost, and that's true. Doctrine in the UMC requires a supermajority of the general conference. I love that word, supermajority. It takes that much to overturn the doctrine of the Methodist Church, and that's true. But it is easy to ignore, resist, and reject it largely by clergy around the country. The issues surrounding human sexuality are just the tip of the iceberg. For example, I could quote many bishops and church leaders 
who deny the divinity of Christ, who deny the exclusivity of Christ for salvation, who deny the virgin birth, I, who write off whole sections of the Bible as culturally irrelevant. I could do that, but I don't want to do that. I don't want to drag their names through the mud. But when we re- ignore, reject, and resist core Christian doctrine, and I would include Christian marriage in that category, then those doctrines get supplanted with opinion. And in so doing, it deconstructs the faith. And if you look at other Protestant denominations, when one of those dominoes falls, other ones are tend to follow. It happens every single time. The unity of the United Methodist Church that you have enjoyed your whole lives is built on a foundation of traditional, scriptural, orthodox, dare I say evangelical, full of grace and truth beliefs. The rampant theological deconstructionism of that foundation has led us to the situation we are in. It has started at the theological level, education level, and it has filtered into pulpits around the country. You cannot chip away your foundation and have a good house. You cannot cut off your legs and expect to stand. The UMC, as it has been, it currently is, and will continue to theologically deconstruct itself to death. And I do not enjoy saying that statement. To the point that it bears no resemblance to the movement begun by the Holy Spirit through John and Charles Wesley. I would contend that it's precisely because of the traditional stance of the Methodist Church that this even allows for theological deconstructionism. It provides material to deconstruct. But like G.K. Chesterton said, before you tear down a fence, you might want to ask why the fence was put up there to begin with. So let's just start with one of the plethora of dysfunctional issues we're facing, and there's a lot. And if you read our website, you can go read it yourself. But let's just look at maybe the one that might be the most significant regarding theological deconstruction, redefining Christian marriage. Now, if the definition of that is not overturned in 2024, it will definitely happen by 2028. It's, it's inevitable. And if you stay United Methodist, you will have to navigate those waters for the remainder of your existence as a local church. But let me start by saying, we are all broken sexually in some capacity. If there was a television over the door over there that listed all the sexual sins you've ever committed, oh, you would get some horrified glances from people, probably two or three or four, but it would create great gossip. But if, if it listed all the sins we had committed in our lives, none of us would be worthy to enter the building, right? Right? None of us. Think of that. But just because I fail and we fail to meet a standard, it doesn't give me the right to pull down the standard. I don't get to, nor do I want to, justify my sin. In Matthew 5:48, Jesus said, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Do any of us meet that standard? No. Now, I think we can get better at it in this life, but do we meet that standard? No. Does that mean Jesus is wrong? Jesus says, when I lust after another woman in my heart, I commit adultery. Guys, you ever failed at that standard? Yeah, you have. Every single one of you have. Probably a lot of the women, too. Is Jesus wrong? No. Standards, I think, are for our good. 
I think there's safety in those guardrails. But for one, when we talk about marriage, I think we have to do it um, compassionately, but also to give qualifiers to it. I think sometimes we can think of marriage as this homogenous entitlement, and I think on a secular level, that is true. Absolutely. You can marry whoever you want. It's the law of the land in the United States. I fully support that on a secular level. But when it comes to defining what Christian marriage is, that is an important distinction that we have to make. When talking about Christian marriage, this is an in-house conversation, if you would put it that way. And now, when we talk about pursuing holiness or abstaining from sin, it sounds ridiculous to a non-Christian person. It sounded that way to me before I became a Christian. I get it. But when you follow Jesus under his lordship, his leadership, the expectations change no matter who you are. Not for, our, not for some hateful rule, but for our good. Christian marriage, as described in Genesis, and then, and then quoted, supported by Jesus in the Gospels, may I add, across thousands of years of history and thousands of years of cultural context, that's God's idea. I don't get to change that. Now, some may say, we have divorced persons who remarry. Why? How is that any different? For one, that statement acknowledges that divorce is a sin. And it's true, divorce is painful. I lament divorce. I've walked with people through their divorces. It is brutal. And I lament how divorced persons are treated and we need to do better. But I don't, we don't write liturgies blessing divorce. I don't celebrate divorce. I mourn with those who go through it. To say we failed at that and get, we gave an allowance, so let's also do the same with this, that doesn't make any sense. Now, I understand that a desire to stay United Methodist is understandably a fear of the future, a fear of the unknown, a fear of what could be, a fear that if you take or just continue on in the historic Christian stance of something, therefore people won't feel welcome. A stance that we've literally always held, but that doesn't mean we don't welcome people. I don't believe that in compromising holiness or even compromising God's standards that somehow uh, ensures church growth. I don't even think that's true. I I don't see it. I don't think it works. Without holiness, Jesus can't be seen in us by the world. And without love, the world will resist the truth of that holiness. The United Methodist Church has always been a church that holds traditional views on a whole host of things. For example, anti-gambling, anti-lottery. We're staunchly in that in the Book of Discipline. Did you know that? Now, we all fail at those standards. Anybody go buy our Powerball ticket last week? (laughs) Sure you did. Are we going to kick you out? No, of course not. We're not going to kick anybody out, ever, of this church. But we aren't going to say it's okay to gamble. Now, one of my main goals as a pastor is to help people have a relationship with God. I'm not in it to look at the externals. I certainly don't care about your sex life. I really don't want to know. That's between you and God. I want to see people come to faith and to know Christ. Now, is preaching the gospel offensive to some people? Yeah, it is. Sure it is. But fear of offense is not a tenable ministry footing. I think the church should not capitulate to culture. It should speak prophetically and lovingly. Because if salt loses its flavor, what good is it? 
Before people have joined the church lately, the past two years, they've come to me, usually on the down low, and they ask, what do you all believe about marriage? And I'll say, hey, well, we believe what the United Methodist Church has always believed. And they go, okay, good. This church has always had traditional United Methodist beliefs. Is this a place of hate? Is it? Walk around here on a Sunday morning and let me know if you see it, because I'll put a stop to it. But the notion that somehow a vote of disaffiliation will cause us to take a hard right turn, that's just untrue, because it's not happening now. There's no boogeyman around the corner. It's not there. The act of disaffiliation ensures you'll be able to walk in the theology, the doctrine, the beliefs you've always had. But staying United Methodist ensures one day the stances that you have gotten used to will change as early as 2024, and that's just a reality. But I think one thing that's helpful is to make sure that you're tempering your opinion with reality. Now, I've done this before, too. I understand. You get worked up. I get in, you get into your echo chamber, and you get all fired up, and you build up emotional straw men in your mind, and you only listen to people that prop up your opinion, and I've been there. I get it. But you know what? In this room, there are no haters. There are no haters. The people with whom you disagree, they are not bad people. Some might better say amen to that. There are people that many of you have literally known your whole life. But I think we do need to temper your opinions with reality. Now, I had a conversation with someone many months ago who was understandably anxious. They were nervous. They're scared. And they came to me, to their credit, with their concerns, and I appreciated that. And we had a really good conversation. And ultimately, I, I did ask, and I asked the same one question of you, what is your expectation for this church? Like, genuinely, like, I really want to know. It's not a trap. Like, wh- what do you want it to be? And they said, you know, I want to be a place where people are loved, they're included, the people in the neighborhood coming in all of that. And I said, great, I'm on board with that. I think that's actually what's happening now. How is that different than your whole life in this church? How is that different than right now? If this church voted to disaffiliate, do you know what would change the next day? Nothing. Nothing would change. Nothing would change about the ministry of your personal experience, your church life here. Nothing would change. Now, maybe you wanted to change, and that's fine. I respect that, too. But a vote to disaffiliate means it will not change. The sermons you enjoy, the children's youth ministries, the teaching, the pastoral care, the 150 new members in the past two years, that continues on. It's just the facts. But what about the future of Wesley Memorial? As it pertains to y'all in this beautiful church with beautiful people in so many ways, there's really only two ways a denomination even affects your your daily experience in the church. The first is pastoral appointments. So, and this is where theology matters, right? Because that's what's coming out of their mouth. So that's why beliefs do matter, because that's what you're going to hear. So there's, what kind of pastor do you want? What kind of shepherd do you want? And then secondly, it impacts your life with, do you want to keep your stuff? It matters with finances. That's pretty much it. And I strongly encourage a vote if only for closure. It's like I said earlier, I'm exhausted about all this stuff, and you probably are too. And regardless of the outcome, be supportive. Just be supportive. The sky is not falling. But 
a, a, if you say no, we shouldn't even have to choose, I, just, I think no choice is a choice you're making. An indecision is a decision. And I would prefer that y'all get to decide rather than the future being determined by indecision. So before you really are two paths. And neither, either one is not easy. That doesn't mean it's bad. But they will be hard or it will be hard. That's just the way it is. You can choose to unite around the United Methodist Church. Totally your call. Or you can choose to unite around disaffiliation. Now, from a pastoral perspective, this situation is somewhat impossible in regards to pleasing all people. Really, what we're trying to do is just mitigate it as best we can because we have groups of people coming to us going, if you don't do this a certain way, we're gone. Other people going, if we don't do this a certain way, we're gone. It's like, well, I just throw my hands up and say, Lord, your will be done. I would rather, though, that you get to decide just like you get to decide if you build a building, right? Or you change the color carpet in the Asbury room. Not that we're doing that. (laughs) So you should get to decide. Why wouldn't you get to decide about something like this? I'm not intimidated by that. You shouldn't be either. If this church was adamantly pro-UMC or pro-disaffiliation, like 100%, I would genuinely support that. I really would, and so would Jeff. I know he would. This is about bigger than us. This is about the next 50 years. So whatever is decided, just be supportive. I would never besmirch any of you or your choice. Now here are some pro-UMC reasons to stay UMC. I want to be fair. Here are some pro-UMC reasons. If you want to go that way, the first is there is a connectional system that's very familiar. That's a pro. You get to continue to use a UMC branding, marketing, and the name This is a pro or a con, depending on your perspective, but it's a greater embrace of progressive theology. That's that's just the way it is. That's stay United Methodist. There's also no disaffiliation payout, so you don't have to pay any money to stay United Methodist. A disaffiliation pros, you have greater autonomy, finances, assets, property, and pastoral appointments, and you get to make a future affiliation decision. That's also a pro or a con, depending on your perspective. Now, a part of the ongoing discernment process, your district superintendent, she still has time to make a presentation for further pro-UMC options, and we encourage that presentation when and if she would like to do that. But know this, if you stay United Methodist, the future of your pastoral and probably some of your ministry programming staff will be uncertain at best. It's definitely not about us, but that's just the stage of the game we're in. If Wesley Memorial voted to disaffiliate, I would join Wesley Memorial in that decision. And if you voted United, stay United Methodist, I would support you in that. But I would, I lean toward disaffiliation. I want to leave you with my vision of the future of the church, a future that I think is one of grace and truth. In John chapter 1, the Apostle John wrote, And the Word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory is of a Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. One of the beautiful strengths of the United Methodist Church for so long is that it was able to hold this tension of grace and truth so beautifully. And I respected that. I've admired that. I was drawn to that, actually, to be ordained in the United Methodist Church, to hold grace and truth in tension. But now it seems we want to be all grace or all truth. Either you're a lover or you're a hater. 
We've descended to this place of false stereotypes and you're looking at the world through a lens of your political affiliation. That doesn't take faith to make decisions on your political beliefs. But today, people think that in order to love someone, you have to agree with them. That's obviously not true. If we knew all the opinions that all of us hold on any topic, we'd probably never speak to each other again. We can love each other and not agree. We can have unity, but not uniformity. No church is a perfect monolith of beliefs. I don't want a total Republican church. That's a problem. And I don't want a whole Democrat church either. That's a problem, okay? But human beings in the flesh, we don't like tension. Holding grace and truth together requires faith. Holding things together that seem disparate and irreconcilable. We don't want to do that. It's easier just to pick one or the other. The church at its best represents a third way. A third way, choosing neither grace nor truth separately, but both simultaneously. That is who I am. That is who I will always be until my last breath on this earth. The way of faith that I believe is closer to the heart and the nature of God is how Jesus ministers to sinners through grace and truth. So think back to me, think back with me to late June Luska 2016. The majority of the lay people in that uh, Stewart Auditorium they voted a certain way, and they're operating out of a truth mentality, right? Right and wrong, that's not right, sin, no sin. And, and I, say to the, I would say to those people, I agree with you, I hear you, I think you're right, but you also need to get pulled back to a place of grace. You need to get pulled back to a place of mercy. To get pulled back to a place on this debate of sexuality it, it, the, the problem I have with it is that it reeks of hypocrisy. It just, it's so one-sided, right? The, the struggle that same-sex attracted persons face, it is real. Their lives are not easy. So begin with mercy and compassion. And if we're going to start kicking sinners out, then none of us can come in the building. Someone better say amen to that too, or else you're a liar in church. Everyone you meet has an internal struggle that you cannot see. So love them as you'd want to be loved. And if you're a homosexual person here today, or you have family members or friends or whatever, the church is sorry for the way it has treated you. You are welcome in this church. You'll be welcome in any church I ever serve in. And if you uphold celibacy and singleness, as I do, then serve single people well. Give them a place to be in community with other people. And stop holding up the nuclear family as the gold standard because it's not it's just the way that God has ordained it I don't get to change that but it doesn't mean I don't love people so take the log out of your own eye before attempting to remove the speck in someone else's eye because then you're able to take the speck out of their eye Jesus is not opposed to judging other people's sin he is deeply opposed to hypocrites trying to judge other people's sin so clean up your own house first. Be faithful to your husband or your wife. Don't look at porn. Don't lust after someone else. And until you do that, maybe keep your opinion to yourself. How about that? So if you're a truth-based person, allow me to pull you to a place of grace and to challenge you that you can do both. Okay, grace-based people, here you go. All the clergy colleagues and the few lady that stood up on that day in 2016, 
to that, to their credit, they're coming from a place of grace. They're coming from a place of love. They're coming from a place of perceived justice. And they're right. People need love. They need care. These are people who are hurting. These are people that God loves. They bear the image of God just as much as you and I do. They are no worse a sinner than anyone else. But allow me to pull you to a place of truth. I have issues into being emotionally manipulated into accepting all of that stuff carte blanche. That attitude says, get on board or else you're a bigot. I reject that because I think it's emotionally manipulative to be boxed into a corner in that way. So allow me to pull you to a place of truth and to be reminded that when all that human sexuality stuff finds its way into a congregation, it always seems to take over and it always seems to take precedence dare I say, it might even become an idol. So I understand the sentiment of reconciling and affirming congregations. At its core, or at its beginning point, I think it's a beautiful thing. But they always seem to be about that. Prevenient grace gets a lot of attention, but what about sanctifying grace? What about the Wesleyan focus on personal holiness? The problem I have is not that one sin, we're all sinners, but the fact that so many clergy I know, they don't talk about sin at all. It's just not even in their, their, their dictionary. So this third way that I'm challenging you on, it's not easy. It's easy to pick grace or truth. But I'm not convinced that's the way of Jesus. He walked in that tension, and he didn't care what people thought as he hung out with sinners and tax collectors. He... he he helped offered them transformation, but not affirmation. This third way means that every Christian, gay, straight, whatever, we have to offer our bodies as living sacrifices to God. This, as, as Paul says, is our spiritual act of worship. That means that no matter who you are, that we are living in a sex-obsessed culture, right? We're living in unprecedented times. I wish I lived in precedented times, but I don't. So you do too, probably. But this device has unlocked a Pandora's box that no one else in the history of the world has had to deal with, but we have to deal with it. Now, we are obsessed with sex. And it is out of control. And so I can't control that. But what I can do is do our best to control ourselves. That means that no matter who you are, we seek to follow Jesus and crucify our old nature and embrace new ones. Paul says that's the highest act of worship, no matter who you are or where you come from. Grace without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms us, but it keeps us in denial about our flaws. That is not helpful. Truth without grace is harshness. It gives information, but in a way that you can't really hear it. God's saving love in Christ, however, is marked by both radical truthfulness about who we are, and yet it's also a grace that is radically committed to us. Holding grace and truth together, being deeply rooted and yet flexible, threading that needle, it's not easy. But if we don't do it, I think we miss the heart of Jesus. If we have any shared future together, it is in that way. And I believe that a future disaffiliation, I think it can actually be healing. I think it can actually be redemptive as we bless the other to go in the way 
of their own conscience. Amen. All right, now, um, we're getting ready to take a break. There's refreshments back here in the Bridge Cafe. If you have your three-by-five card, please put them on the table back at the back on your way out and come back in about 10 minutes. We'll make it, uh, yeah, come back in about 10 minutes. All right? So thank you. Again, please take your seats. We want to get out of here before midnight. <laughs> what? All right, please take your seats. Uh, could somebody mention to the folks out in the Bridge Cafe it's time to come in? All right. Uh, Thank you. Now I'm going to turn it back over to Jeff and Clark to answer some of our questions. Thank you. You want to go first? Want to go? Okay. Go ahead. <laughs> Sorry, this isn't. This is the first time experience of my life doing something like this. This is very good, though. We appreciate all your feedback, and like we said, if we we can't get to all of these in the next, you know, a little bit, but we'll definitely answer them in a document we'll put on the website um, as soon as we can, and as best we can, and as honestly as we can. Um, uh, the first one I have is why hasn't the DS not spoken to the congregation? Has she been asked? What do you know? Has she, has she been asked yet? Yes. She has been asked. Okay. So if so, what was her response? Uh, I think right now it's just we're sort of waiting, right? Yes. So that's, that's the answer. I, I think that will happen. I hope it does happen. We encourage it to her, her to come. So, I guess I go next. Um, regarding the two-thirds vote, is it limited adults, congregational members only other? In the United Methodist Church, our Book of Discipline uh, defines a quorum. A quorum is the full professing members present and voting. So it's all full professing members present and voting. That's the way all of our church votes happen in the UMC. So um, professing, professing members mean, it's what we used to call full members, and now we call them professing members. What we used to call probationary members, we call baptized members of children. So everyone confirmation age and above who have, been, who have professed faith in Christ, uh, all, all professing members present and voting. And again, that's done under the presiding of a district superintendent. Well, this is a good question. I've heard this a lot. Um, it's a, it's a well used. Um, since Jesus, Jesus never spoke about homosexuality and spoke only about love, inclusion of all, why do we use other scriptures? I don't know if I understand that question. 
But really what this person's getting at is what's really called an argument from silence um, because he didn't talk about it, therefore. But that, if you follow that logically down where it's coming from, you could follow that rabbit trail to all sorts of ways. Jesus didn't talk about lots of things, um, but that doesn't mean necessarily it's okay. I mean, he didn't, he didn't specifically address a whole host of issues. I just don't think... I mean, when you talk about the, 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 the role of Scripture in the life of the believer... Um, we all have feelings and desires from within, and it's not, those aren't bad, you know, how you feel is how you feel. Uh, it's, it's the action of those things. And, and the good news is, there's grace. I mean, God, God loves you, he forgives you. It's not like you're, you're cursed or something, gay or straight. Um, we all have feelings and, and desires we want to accomplish and do that maybe might not be the most productive to our lives. Um, but no, uh, even though Jesus didn't speak about it, I mean, you have many other uh, scriptures throughout the, the Bible, and I can't get into the whole, is it culturally relevant or not, line of, of thinking, but at least not right now. Um, but, and then it, there's, there's a bit of, a, a, of an assumption here that Jesus only talked about love and inclusion of all. I would challenge you to go read like the Gospel of Matthew and just read through Jesus' hard sayings where the prophet really comes forth. And come back to me and, and ask. Now, of course, he's loving all. Don't get me wrong. But it's not in the way I think that you're interpreting the lens um, uh, in, in that way. I mean, uh, he, 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 he frequently was tough, you know, for our good, I think. But um, anyway, I'll stop there. So I'll follow up on that since I've got a few of those cards, too. Talking about divorce, ordination of women, and ordination of self-avowed practicing homosexuals. You know, the question in several different ways comes in, what's the difference? Uh, we do ordain women in our tradition. We had uh, women in the earliest days of uh, Methodism. Uh, most of them were lay preachers. Um, one of the differences between, with women's ordination is we have worn in the New Testament. There's Chloe, uh, who was head of the church in Sincrea. Um, the church met in her house. Uh, if you look at the 16th chapter of the book of Romans, there's actually Junia mentioned, and Paul refers to her as a fellow apostle. Uh, and of course, the first preachers of the resurrection were women. So we have warrant uh, in the scriptures for the ordination of women, and we've used those scriptures for our history. Uh, Quakers, Methodists, and then in more recent years has been Pentecostals and Charismatics. Uh, we've had a long history of women. Uh, more of your mainline churches began adopting women. We gave full clergy rights to women uh, in 1955. We ordained our first, the first Methodist body was a Methodist Protestant church that ordained the first female in 1848, I believe it was. Uh, but in, in scripture, there, there's warrant for, 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 the, for, for women in leadership. Uh, in, in, in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about uh, women praying in public and prophesying in public. Uh, that's there in, in 1 Corinthians. So there's some warrant there. Um, divorce. Uh, a divorce is never a good, obviously. Nobody, I hope, gets married with that as their aim. Uh, it's something that, that, nobody, that nobody goes after. It's just um, it's part of the human condition. And that's in the Bible. In, in Matthew 19, where 
Jesus defines Mary. Now, he come up to him talking about marriage, and he goes back to the book of Genesis. He's talking about how a man shall leave his parents and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one. That's where Jesus is talking about marriage. And, and in that same section, he talks about how the law of Moses allowed for divorce, and the law of Moses did allow for divorce. Jesus said the law of Moses allowed for divorce. The way it's said in the Gospels is because of the hardness of our hearts, and what, the way we'd say it in contemporary culture is because of human brokenness, human sin. We don't do everything perfectly. So sometimes the, the, the best option we have may be, uh, I've told couples for years, if I can't help you put together a Christian marriage and you're determined that that can't happen, uh, let me help you with a Christian divorce. Let me help you divorce in a way uh, that, 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 that shows Christian love to each other. So divorce and, and ordination of women, uh, obviously the Christian community has thought that it's somewhat different. Uh, the ordination of gays still stands in our discipline. Uh, it's, it's been there. Um, the vote at annual conference was 53 to 47%. Uh, you may disagree with those 53%. But um, so that issue, it may be the cutting edge issue. But for a lot of people, they see that issue differently uh, than the ordination of women or, or the forgiving of divorce or getting beyond divorce. So that's a short answer. That was short? Wow, I'm impressed. Um, <laughs> He loves me, so he knows he can, I can get away with it. Um, yeah, and, and aligned with that line of thinking, you know, there's a lot of questions about ordinate women, it's the same as civil rights. I mean, let's just be honest, right? The time is short. I don't think we have enough time to play games. You're talking about civil rights. I'm just not, I'm not so sure that an intrinsic quality like gender or race is the same as a behavior. I'm still not there yet? And I pray every day, God, if I'm wrong, tell me. I, I genuinely am that person. But, um, and also throughout scripture, we see a progression. Like you see, said women being elevated. We see, that doesn't mean we demote people, who, but, but you do see Jesus elevating, going against cultural trends with women. Slavery, you see slaves um, being, the Christian church really elevating the status of slaves through Paul's writings. Um, this next question is a good one because it does come back to authority, which is really what a lot of these debates is about. The Articles of Religion in the Book of Discipline is very specific about the authority of Scripture. Why does it appear many of our church leaders seem to ignore it when convenient to them? Well, for one, I'd say, um, you know, sinners have never really enjoyed being told what to do. <laughs> We've always liked sheep, right? We buck, we run, we disobey. Um, and that really is, comes down to is, am I going to live under the authority of something or someone, or am I going to be above it um, and, and find joy and freedom in that? Why do church leaders seem to ignore it? I mean, who's to say? It's, that's a broad brush to paint, paint with, but I think, um, and like I said earlier, a big part of our divinity schools, there's a lot of deconstructionism. There's a lot of picking apart the text to um, arrive at just an, an inherent place of bias or skepticism. And, and then the, the danger of that, though, is that then you then say, well, that's what it says, but here's what I think it says, right? And then, and then you get into this um, rabbit trail of your opinion is trumping what God's word is saying. 
And that's just a dangerous place to go. Um, you know, even Jesus said at the end of Revelation, um, I won't quote what he said, but you can go look it up if you want to. <laughs> uh, that basically what's in this book is in this book, you know. And, and, we, we, and we can get into what's literal and what's literary. There are some things that are literary, that are historical, that are poetic, etc. And some things are literal. Some things are literal precepts by which to live. But now, again, why do church leaders seem to ignore it? Um, I don't know. I, I think it's, maybe they think it's easier to capitulate, maybe. Um, I mean, I had great advice one time in one of my seminary classes, when, uh, or my preaching classes, when the, my professor said, um, people don't come to church to hear what you have to say. They want to hear what God has to say, right? And that's really where the power is. It's in his word. It's not in my opinion. You don't come to hear that. I mean, you could if you wanted to, but it wouldn't buy you much than a cup of coffee or whatever. Um, but ultimately... What's called, what we call a high view of Scripture. It's just his word is life, and we, we want to present that. And so I don't know why in the world you'd be ashamed of it or want to apologize for it, um, but we have church leaders who do sometimes. A couple of questions. Um, they're very similar. Asking me about when I became a member of the Wesleyan Covenant Association, uh, when I served as president. Um, if you don't know about the Wesleyan Covenant Association, it was founded uh, around 2015, I believe, in Chicago. I was at the founding of the Wesleyan Covenant Association with about 2,000 other folks from across the Connection, some of my heroes theologically and uh, as pastors in the Connection were there. I've been part of renewal groups uh, since back in the 90s. I, I paid dues to the confessing movement. Um, so yes, I joined the Wesleyan Covenant Association. I was at the, the founding of it. My bishop, I was on the cabinet at that point. My bishop blessed me in going. Uh, the Wesleyan Covenant Association was the newest, newest iteration of a renewal movement. Um, so yeah, I joined in 2017. For a few months, I served as president uh, for the local chapter. It was just a little more than I could handle, so I, I helped them get organized and then I bless them, and somebody else is doing that now. Um, so yes, that's the, the Wesleyan Covenant Association. Uh, in some ways, in a lot of ways, was the midwife for the GMC, the Global Methodist Church. Now, on the Global Methodist Church transitional committee that's that's putting that together at this time, uh, there's only. I think two members of the WCA serving on that. So the GMC is far broader uh, than WCA. There were groups from uh, what the, the Confessing Movement, WCA, Good News Movement, some other renewal groups. Um, I, as soon as I became president of the WCA, um, I talked to the leadership here and they all knew what I was, was, was doing. I'm a part of several organizations. I, I try to be helpful where, where I can. Um, I, and I think in, in the vein of the same question somebody asked about uh, speaking in other churches, particularly coming back from General Conference, I was honored to be one of the 12 clergy delegates that went to the last two General Conferences. And I feel like it's incumbent on any of us to get elected uh, to, to represent the annual conference, to, to come back and represent what went on there and help people understand what went on there. So um, I've had a few friends uh, who were pastors or a few churches that I was particularly close to 
um, where I did spend some time talking about, particularly the disaffiliation process. I was in the room when paragraph 2553 was, um, was proposed as legislation and adopted. So, um, yeah, I've, I've done some speaking on those, on those issues, too. Well, this card has four questions, so does that count as four cards for me? I guess so. <laughs> These are good. What is the amount of unfunded pension liability for our former pastors? I do not know the answer to that. Harvey, are you in here? <laughs> that number has not been released yet uh, from our, our uh, district office. Uh, that could be forthcoming at some point down the road, but we really do not know. Uh, you, there, you there's know? actually you know? there's some negotiation and conversation. Uh, it runs all the way from there is no unfunded pension liability to a fairly substantial amount. But the district superintendent, that comes from the conference, and that only comes to a church when the district superintendent shows up. Uh, we'll, we'll come and bring that figure. Right, the unfunded pension and the two years of apportionment. Two years of apportionments. Why would the annual conference of UMC that meets in June, late June, let's go, why would they approve of churches leaving? Well, uh, we're seeing around the country, I mean, you see annual conferences, especially called annual conferences, approving churches leaving. Um, I've not heard of any being denied that. I think it would be wise to, if churches want to go, I don't see the point standing in their way, uh, if that's what they want to do. So um, this is another good question. What, what would we do if two-thirds voted to leave, but the annual conference didn't vote to approve of us leaving? That's, that's an option. I mean, that could happen. I don't know if it would, but... Usually, what happens at an annual conference where there's the closing of a church... I mean, we've had disaffiliations before. It's not a brand new thing. We had 42 churches disaffiliated at the last annual conference. Um, it's, well, it's, it, we don't know how many would be disaffiliated in this annual conference. It, most of the time, it's like the closing of the church. It comes as a um, motion from the cabinet, and it is almost a formality. I've never seen an annual conference not vote to let churches close, let churches disaffiliate if they, if they choose to do that. I don't know what would be gained by sort of holding somebody into a marriage. Yeah. Will Jeff and Clark stay with Wesley Memorial regardless of the results of the vote? Well, I'll stay with you as long as you'll have me. Yeah. <laughs> and again, as far as UMC, that's bishop and cabinet. Yeah. You know, that's bishop and cabinet. Uh, our appointments, I guess you know, our appointments are, he's ordained deacon, I'm ordained elder. As an ordained elder, our appointments are, have always been a year at a time. So that's in the hands of the, the bishop and the cabinet each year. Me now? Sure. If the church votes to become an independent Methodist church, uh, who will be our ministers and how will they be appointed and what Discipline will be used for its operation. Um, some churches, upon disaffiliation, because uh, again, affiliation is a second issue. Uh, some churches, I'm noticing, are not rushing to affiliation. They're spending a season as, I uh, don't like the word independent a lot, but maybe that's the best word. Uh, what I've noticed, some of the churches are doing, they're just referring to themselves as community churches. Um, they, they get, they'll get their clergy the same way we here would get an associate pastor. And you may or may not know how you do that, depending on if you've been on staff parish. Um, the way you do associate pastors is pastors are just outright, senior pastors, outright appointed. But the way you get an associate pastor is people out there who would like to be considered 
for that. Uh, they, they, they fill out the resumes and there's a pool. And then that's one of those places, and some of you have participated in it, where um, for associate pastors, you, you, the Staff Parish Relations Committee or Personnel Committee uh, and, and interviews those people and then makes a request to the bishop. Um, the bishop doesn't have to honor that. Most of the time, most bishops and cabinets do try to honor uh, when a church, particularly the church, says, yes, we want that associate pastor. And if that associate pastor of the ones that are interviewed perhaps put that church as their first choice, uh, the bishop and cabinet tries to honor that. So uh, if you were in an independent type status, uh, you, you would, that sort of process would be what you would do for, uh, for a senior clergy. Uh, think about some churches like Riverside in New York City, Marble Collegiate in um, New York City. Uh, when I was a district superintendent, Marble Collegiate, you may know that great church, it's, it's the oldest corporation in New York City. Uh, Marble Collegiate is a great church in New York City. They came to Centenary, Winston, and got Michael Brown, uh, invited Michael Brown to consider being the pastor, and Michael did go and become the pastor at Marble Collegiate. Uh, he he uh, filed his reports with us annually. A lot of times when pastors go away from the annual conference, they don't do that as well. Michael did that. Marble Collegiate, actually, you may or may not know, that was the church made famous by Norman Vincent Peale. Uh, Marble Collegiate was uh, Dutch Reformed by background, and then eventually also kind of uh, affiliated with United Church of Christ. But both of those traditions allow the local church a lot of involvement in, um, in the choosing of their pastors. Uh, if we disaffiliate from UMC, uh, how basically how do you perceive disaffiliation as being free from the conflict? Uh, it's kind of similar to what you just answered about by what policies or teachings or what have you would we subscribe to or be held by in a, sorry in an independent status? Uh, you don't like that word either. Um, and I would say as United Methodist pastors and it's, United, it's still a Methodist church, we would hold by Methodist teaching uh, as we've always done. I don't see that changing. Uh, in an interim status and into the future. Uh, like we said, the DNA of a church does not change. Uh, the, so um, it, it, so would, would disaffiliation free us from conflict? You know, <laughs> how, how, how long have you all been in church? <laughs> Is water wet? Um, it happens. It just happens. It's inevitable. Uh, but how do, we, how do we resolve differences in love and in, in understanding and speaking the truth in love in person um, usually helps a long, goes a long way. Um, but, but yeah, I think on an interim basis, we would do our best to, to walk in that uh, Methodist polity um, until a future affiliation decision. Somebody's done their homework. They wrote, can you address the Wild Goose Festival Specifically, the class, it actually was a workshop on, on Christianity and non-monogamy, uh, exploring outside of monogamy while keeping the faith. Uh, that was a, the Wild Goose Festival is, a, a, is, a, is an event that happens in the western part of our conference. Uh, it is attended by clergy and non-clergy, not a hugely attended event. Um, obviously, most of our clergy do not go to it. 
Um, my wife reminded me it's usually the cool clergy that go to the Wild Goose Festival, and that's why I'm usually left out of that. The Wild Goose Festival, um, they see themselves on cutting edge. One of the, one of the uh, workshops they had this past year, uh, they brought in a therapist from um, Asheville who taught a course on helping uh, non-monogamous United Methodists, and you know, non-monogamous means not just one person, how to help non-monogamous United Methodists em embrace polyamory. Uh, polyamory is multiple lovers. Uh, that was a workshop. Uh, again, most Methodist clergy do not end up going there, but some did. S some people do not like that, particularly because it does take some funding uh, from the United Methodist Church. So, um, yes. Uh, like I was saying about uh, social media, a lot of this stuff's all over social media. You can't miss it. Um, and you have to decide, well, again, you know, every Methodist pastor didn't go to that, but some sure, certainly did. Um, anyway, Wild Goose Festival. I, again, I encourage people, go Google that. Let them speak for themselves. You can Google Wild Goose Festival, and you can get their their homepage and the Wikipedia article if you want both, but let, the, let them speak for themselves. I'm glad you answered that one. I saw it and I, <laughs> I avoided that one. This next one is similar. Um, can you address the instances where United Methodist clergy have presented children's sermons dressed in drag, i.e. Miss Penny Cost from Bloomington, Illinois, there was another drag-based uh, uh, children's time at a church, and was it Wingate? Is that right? The they Methodist did, Church they in did Wingate? storytelling. Storytelling time? Well, they were going to, the district superintendent stopped it. Okay, good for them. Good, that's good. Uh, you know, yeah, this is a, to be fair, I, I think this is a little bit of an outlier situation, but clearly this is a person that is an or, uh, up, they're not ordained, but they are up for ordination. They're in the process of ordination. Um, and this, this is trotted out frequently as sort of like, a boogeyman or something, um, but yeah, that that is happening, um, and that's that's just uh, where some things lead. I mean, it. I I see it. You know, we would all agree that dressing in blackface is uh, hateful to African Americans. Correct? Yes. I, in some ways, see. Dressing up as a woman, I see it as a caricature of women. I don't see it as empowering to women. I see it as, um, I don't see mocking them, that's not true. But I just, I see it in a similar light. And um, I, if I could meet that person and speak with them, I would love them, I would welcome them, I would, um, and hopefully drill down a little bit deeper to what, what is that all you know, really about. Um, but I also refuse to let instances like that scare or drive me to, uh, I don't know, I'll stop there before I say something stupid. Here's a question. Hopefully when the final meeting is held, it will not interfere with Christmas holidays and family time. Um, <laughs> That's, no, that's really very... At least they're being really, honest. That's really very legitimate. And just so you know, uh, that's why if you pay attention and read your Wesley Weekly, we do have the town hall on the 29th of November. And then I've kind of declared, and by the way, so has the cabinet, um, the West North Carolina cabinet and bishop. We've all sort of declared a moratorium during December. 
you know, just like I don't, you know, this has not been the focus of sermons. Um, don't certainly don't want this to be the focus of Christmas celebrations. So yes, after tonight and November the 29th, uh, you you can take a breather. Now, whenever the final vote comes, again, that's at the discretion of the district superintendent. Uh, she has 120 days to to kind of evaluate us, participate with us, and call for that vote. But again, that she presides over that meeting, she sets that meeting. Uh, in the United Methodist Church, you cannot have a congregational vote unless it's called by the, by the district superintendent. But I, I will assure you she won't call it during Christmas. Um, if the church question. remains with the UMC, is it true that UMC will require the pastors to take 16 hours of critical race theory training we know what CRT teaching is doing to our children in public school. I do not want CRT taught in our Sunday school. Uh, I've never been required to, to include critical race theory training. Can you? Well, we were. We are required during this. Now that you say that. We are required during this quadrennium, which is 2020 to 24. Uh, we always have, uh, we require our clergy to do things like ethics training, different things. Uh, the requirement this year, or this quadrennium from 20 to 2024, 20, is that we do take a course 16 hours regarding racism. Now, again, it's up. Some of the people that I, and I hear from lots of people, some people who have gone to those 16 hours uh, leave away, leave frustrated saying it did feel awful lot like critical race theory. I'm not an expert on critical race theories. Mm. I'm not even sure 100% what that is. But we are being required to take 16 hours, two eight-hour days uh, on, on racism. And um, some people are defining it that way. We have the quadrennium. Uh, through the end of 2024, the clergy do have the, the, to take that. So the answer is yes. <laughs> we will be required to take it. But that doesn't mean it's going to get taught in Sunday school. So, at all. Make that clear. Annual conference. Annual conference. Annual conference. West North Carolina annual conference. Um, Oh, here's one that is. Um, who in the Western Conference put, I guess I need to specify what I mean by Western jurisdiction. Uh, you know, we have the General Conference, which presides over the whole church, theoretically. That's our global gathering, Methodists from around the world. Then we have annual conferences, um, like we are Western North Carolina Annual Conference. Eastern people get to call themselves the North Carolina Annual Conference. Well, we have jurisdictional conferences. There are five jurisdictions. Uh, those of us in this annual conference, we're, we're in the southeastern jurisdiction. There's South Central. There's New England. New England, there's the Midwestern. The western jurisdiction is uh, a large jurisdiction geographically. Uh, it, it encompasses places like California, Nevada, and Oregon, and, and Washington State, and Idaho. It's a large area uh, geographically, small, small area, small, small area in regards to the number of churches. Um, I was really tired the day I found out that when I was district superintendent out of Winston-Salem of the Yakin Valley District, that it encompassed five counties surrounding Winston-Salem. I had more churches in my district than there were United Methodist churches in California. 
Um, really? So the Western jurisdiction does not have a lot of churches, uh, but they're one of our five jurisdictions. And when I mention that they have now elected two self-avowed practicing homosexuals, that's the Western jurisdiction, uh, the Western part of the United States. Uh, what is the financial plan for breaking away? I don't like to use that word. Uh, dis disaffiliation, financial plan for disaffiliation. So what they're really asking is who gets church building? Well, the, currently, as we said, this church is under trust in the United Methodist Church. The United Methodist Church is second only to the Catholic Church in terms of property and assets in the whole world. It's a huge, huge organization. So currently, all that this is is owned by the United Methodist Church. Um, what paragraph 2553 in the Book of Discipline allows for is a legal pathway to retain your assets and your property by the end of next year. Um, the reason this is expedited recently is because of um, deadlines to get in for, for annual conference before June, really before April 1st. And so that's why this, some of this has moved along more quickly than we anticipated. Um, but church building would, if, if this church had disaffiliate, uh, then you would own the title, the deed would belong to Wesley Memorial, the people of Wesley Memorial. Um, when John Wesley set up the trust clause, and correct me if I'm wrong, biblical scholar here, um, it was intended to keep Calvinism out of the pulpit and to keep doctrinal purity from being preached from the pulpits. So in John Wesley's wisdom, um, that's why the trust clause was put in, so that you could go, hey, no, 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 don't say that from the pulpit. You're out of here. This pul pulpit belongs to us, right? Um, well, now, nowadays, it's not really what it's you know, being intended for. Um, so, yeah, this beautiful building that so many wonderful people built um, let me say this, this building, this campus was built to be thriving. This campus was built to be a powerhouse. And, and I love seeing all the people in here. I love seeing all of you here tonight, that this church was made for people. And that's the, uh, what I think, I just wanted to, all right, got my preacher soapbox. Lastly, who gets the endowments? Now, the endowment money is, it's like, that's, that's not a property of the United Methodist Church, correct? That is... That, is, that already is Wesley Memorials. Correct. That's not up for discussion. Unless it's, unless it's written in a certain way that right. it goes to the conference. Yeah, the Methodist Trust Clause has a, over a 200-year history. One of the things I learned when I was a district superintendent, because churches would ask, even if they were to find the old deed, and you know this church was established 1856, even if they found the old deed and there was no insertion of the Methodist Trust Clause in that deed, would it still... Uh, be upheld, and what, what, at least at that point, what our denominational chancellors was telling us was the short answer is yes, because of precedent. Uh, even if it's not written in any particular deed, the Methodist Trust Clause has been around since like 1792. Uh, John Wesley did that to make sure, and he did it to keep Calvinist. He, that was in the middle of his debate with George Whitfield and Calvinist. He did it to make sure that somehow Calvinists were kept out of the pulpits of the Methodist churches uh, in, the, in, the, in, in England. Um, but even if it's not in the deed, it, it, the precedence is still there. I can do this one fast. Do you think the lack of agreement in theology and doctrine are partly responsible for the decline in the UMC over the past 20 years? Yes. That's it? That's it. That's your only answer? Well, I, now, it's about 25 years ago, there was a study done where people were asked, you know, they were given denominational titles. And they, it was a study to see what people thought of 
when they heard Baptist, Lutheran, Presbyterian, Roman Catholic. And it was an interesting study because when people, when people heard Methodist, not a lot of images popped up. Um, so there probably has been an identity crisis for us. I'm on the cards. Oh, give me one. I got plenty. <laughs> we are. Can we do another do ten minutes, maybe? Does Does twenty five paragraph twenty five fifty three require a vote of two thirds of the recorded membership of the local church, or is it two thirds of the members who vote? If the latter, what is the quorum required? Didn't you already answer this? That quorum is whoever yeah, is here. Yeah, quorum is over here. Yeah. Okay. Here's, here's sort of a, a question about the Global Methodist Church, GMC. Um, again, whatever you choose to affiliate with, if you choose to affiliate, is the call of the, the congregation. Uh, the GMC is, an, is a fairly new thing. As most of you know, it just started uh, this past May the 1st. Um, it's doing well from all that I hear. It is being made up of a lot of uh, United Methodist DNA who are leaving the United Methodist Church and gravitating that way. Uh, there, there will not be a convening conference for the GMC as a denomination probably for about two more years. And then um, um, there will be a provisional annual conference here in North Carolina probably next year sometime because of the large number of churches that are disaffiliating this month from the eastern part of the conference, uh, assuming that some of them, or a significant number of them, will go into the GM church. Uh, but the GM church is, uh, we, we, the big church in Alabama, Fraser Memorial, uh, actually went Free Methodist. Free Methodist as a denomination has been around since the 1850s. Uh, they broke from uh, the main Methodist body over the issue of slavery. But we don't really have Free Methodist churches in this area. It's mostly a northern uh, denomination. Uh, but Free Methodist, um, GM Church, there will be churches looking at the GM Church, and there are others. But um, that's the answer for GM. I mean, I have no affiliation with the GMC. They've talked to me about leadership, and I tell them I'm really happy in North Carolina and um, right here where I'm at. And it would be curious to see what they become, what, it, what becomes of them in the next couple of years. I know a lot of the great leaders uh, that, that are making the GM Church. Just in, Again, just like with the Wild Goose, let them speak for themselves. Go look at, go look at the website. Go look at, um, uh, on the website is their proposed book of discipline. Uh, and, they, and that proposed book of discipline that will go to the convening conference does contain a lot of the um, reforms that we've been talking about for the last 30 years, such as bishops having limited terms instead of life, district superintendents being presiding elders that are part-time that also serve a church, but they function with the bishop on the cabinet. Uh, no Methodist trust clause in the GMCs. Uh, congregations are free to join or exit should they want to do that. Um, but uh, if a church disaffiliates then, and like I said, what, what I'm noticing around the connection, a lot of churches are sort of taking a breather at that point. But then they eventually do start looking at, do they want to affiliate with someone else? Denominations can be wonderful, wonderful things as long as they are a means to an end, as long as they are a means 
to help people come together for the purposes of ministry and mission. So I, I know that denominationalism has fallen on tough time here in, here in recent history in the United States, but I haven't given up on denominations yet. Um, I, I like our traditions. Like I say, I'm Methodist to the core. That's theological. Uh, that's social otherwise. Um, but even, even there's, a, there's a place for denominations, and that's, that's a separate decision. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. There's, there's a thing called the United Methodist Church is connected or connectionalism, and that's one of the great strengths of the United Methodist Church for so long is that we have been connected in that way. And unfortunately, that connection has been breaking down for a long, long time, and it's continuing to this very day. So I think this, is, this question relates to that. There hasn't been much information about disaffiliating and choosing to remain independent or unaffiliated. What are the advantages and disadvantages of this option? Seems like there would be less politics. Um, I think there's no perfect polity system for a Christian denomination, but the, I think the Methodist one at its essence, the bones of it, is the best. In terms of pastoral appointments and episcopacy, which I think is scriptural, um, district superintendents who are watching over churches uh, and, and holding you know, accountability and serve. Uh, there, there's elements of that that I think are very good. I've worked in very large churches in Charlotte, mega churches of various kinds when I was, when I was a younger man. And um, they were largely independent, right? These really big places. Um, there are strengths and weaknesses to that. I mean, churches that are big enough, you really have denominations, are, like you said, are good. Um, and all of them were affiliated with something more or less um, because we all need checks and balances, right? I mean, we all need some sort of um, accountability uh, and that's either as individuals or as um, bodies of believers. So that's where I think affiliating yourself with some body is a very good idea and to continue that connectional, uh, connectional DNA. And this is a good follow-up on that. Someone has asked, what's happening with congregational sizes of the churches um, that, that disaffiliate. Uh, what we're noticing, because this has been happening now for a couple years, uh, happening in the last year in earnest, I guess, churches that are weak and dying, changing affiliations or becoming independent all of a sudden doesn't change that reality. Um, churches that are vital to begin with, several of them, such as the one in uh, Mount Bethel, uh, the big one in, in North Georgia, um, they have received a whole lot of new members um, because of, of, of becoming disaffiliated, because of stepping away from some of the conflict. So some of the vital churches are becoming more vital. I'm hearing remarkable numbers coming in. I'm sure, you know, those, those numbers are probably exaggerated because preachers exaggerate, particularly with math. Um, so I, I, I like to call it church math. Yeah, church math. But so some of the churches that are strong to start with are becoming stronger. Uh, I know some churches that are weak, they're already on life support, and there's not much you can do about them. Um, but there is evidence that some are, are, are thriving as a result of more, of more local autonomy, more local decisions. If I stop there. Oh. Um, yeah, we'll stop there. Y'all are starting to look like we're wearing you down. Ken, I'm bringing Ken up. Ken, will you come and close us in prayer?
Sure, sure. We, we've, sure. sure, I mean, we've already got some people who have volunteered to help do that. I guess the only caveat, there are a few up here that I really can't read. But um, if somebody can read them, we'll, we'll, we will do that. We will do that, definitely, definitely. Ken? I'm going to ask you to stand, please. And what I ask you to do now is take a really deep breath and let it out slowly. Deep breath. And out slowly. Let's pray. Oh God, your word declares that you have breathed into us the breath of life. Make us mindful with each breath that we are yours. And we come to you acknowledging you as the source of our life, of our future. And we bear what's in our hearts. We confess that our hearts are heavy and weary about all of this. We acknowledge that we are imperfect people. And confess that sometimes we seek only our will and our wants. In turn, it raises tensions and frays relationships. Forgive us, we pray. Turn us toward your grace and your truth as our companions and guides under the leadership of the Holy Spirit in this life journey. May our Christian character reflect humility for ourselves and respect and goodwill for others. Our fervent prayer is that you, O oh God, will guide our stumbling steps toward the God-honoring path of our future in your care. May that truly be the ultimate desire of all of our hearts. In the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.